in a world gone mad. Only rationality and common sense can save it. It's Andrew and Jerry Save the World with your hosts, Andrew Langer and Jerry Rogers. And now, here's Andrew and Jerry. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to Andrew and Jerry Save the World, episode 15. Andrew and Jerry, actually, we're not even going to call this. It's Andrew and Jerry's quarterly political review. We're going to be doing a bunch of these, a bunch of these. We're going to be doing them once a quarter uh, now through the midterms uh, and then again uh, uh, going up to the uh, the presidential election in 2024, probably beyond that as well. I'm Andrew Langer. I'm Jerry Rogers. Uh, Jerry Rogers, who is who now calmed down. I'm always a little uh, a little uh, a little up, aren't I? So, yeah. Well, no, I mean, no, no, no. I mean, it's just you, you, you see. Anyway, we'll, we'll talk about your Eeyore-ishness in a moment. You've got a lot to be Eeyore-ish about right now. We're going to be joined in a couple of minutes by Amber Athey, who uh, many of you will know uh, is the, the Washington editor of The Spectator, uh, also was most recently employed uh, by Cumulus Media at uh, WMAL, uh, working with our good friend Larry O'Connor on his show, O'Connor and Company. Uh, we're going to talk to her about what's gone down over there, but also to get her perspective on a whole host of issues. And, and really, that's what this is all about. This is a catch-all episode, uh, kind of like we're going to take Rip from the Headlines. In fact, maybe I'll delay starting Rip from the Headlines until later on. We'll, we'll do it when Amber comes on in our in our expert yeah. advice segment. Um, but we got, a, we got a lot going on in the world, don't we, Jerry? Well, of course. I mean, we have... Uh, we have the Democrats taking credit for a thriving economy. Uh, and what's interesting about that is, is that we've had uh, seven consecutive months of 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 no wage growth. Uh, we've had uh, historic inflation. Time out, time out for a second. All right. Do you believe these jobs numbers? Well, yes and no. Uh, okay. um, yes and no. Uh, we uh, we had on. Brian Darling on the Jerry Rogers show over at WBAL. And, and he, he, he talked about something that we used to talk about, but haven't recently. And that is uh, uh, workers are just dropping out of the labor force. Yeah. The labor it, force participation rate. Exactly right. And it's at, it's at, again at historic lows, but here's the most important number when it comes to job growth. Uh, and that is, remember we had the great firing. All yeah. the lockdowns and restrictions, especially on Main Street, mom and pop jobs, uh, restaurants, entrepreneurs, small business owners, were essentially just told to go home and stop working. Yes, and and so we're we're now coming back. There's, there is great uh, a revival, um, so to speak, vis a vis the COVID lockdowns. But the problem is, and here's them to remember: yeah. we are still hundreds of thousands of jobs short of pre-pandemic. Yes. Well, not and that's the million, real number. Million, millions of jobs short. Yes, I mean, that's exactly know, right. This is this is this is the thing that gets me and, and why the numbers in my mind don't quite jibe and why it's interesting to talk about. Right. The payroll numbers versus what are, what's called the labor participation rate, which is sure. this idea of, you know, what the Labor Department does is they do a household survey. And they literally call folks and they ask them if they've been employed, right? And part of it is, you know, the great thing about the labor participation rate is that it gets at folks who have gig economies and those who are self-employed sure. and That's all right. of those things. And if those numbers, uh, if if the if the labor participation numbers are lower than the payroll numbers, right? When you call businesses and you ask them how many are on their payroll, this gives you a much much more accurate 
survey. What 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 gets me and, and something that I've been thinking about quite a bit, Jerry, it, it, and the reason why stuff doesn't jibe for me is the fact that we have a as you were just talking about, we have wages being stagnant. If the if the jobs numbers were as high as they are, right, and we have. Right all of these companies that are looking for workers, then you would see the wage numbers go up, which is, and frankly, exactly what we did see during the Trump administration right, uh, in right. 2017 and 2018. We saw that all happen. We saw real wages go up. We saw both the payroll numbers and the labor participation rate numbers uh, uh, go up. And, and so it, it, it was one of those, it was a situation in which you had real organic economic growth and it was chartable. The right. fact that I see businesses, and I don't know about how it is where you live, Jerry, but I have businesses still shut down. And I know some folks are going to say, well, well, if they can't find labor, it's because the labor market is scarce. No, it's because they're, they're you know, actually, let me get back to something that doesn't jibe for me, Jerry. If all of these businesses were coming back, and all of these jobs numbers were accurate, and we were getting the same kind of growth, right? If, if we were having a one-for-one replacement of, of, of workers, we would not be seeing all of these businesses searching for work. Now, I, all of these businesses are searching for employees. And sure. all I can think, listen, I, I can wear my tinfoil hat and say, <laughs> no, I'm not gonna, I'm not, you know, I'm not gonna do that. I'm just gonna say it like this. Where did these workers go? Right. It, it's not that they are right. all hired elsewhere. And, 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 and the other part of this, Jerry, right, is if the economy were really doing as well as it is, uh, then then we wouldn't be seeing the the Obama, I almost said Obama administration, the Biden administration uh, turning around and and, for instance, you know, delaying uh, the restarting of college debt payments, student loan debt sure, repayments. Sure. Uh, they would they would be getting better. Well, look, Sorry, go ahead. There, there are a couple of things here. Number one. Uh, real wages are declining. That's the fact. Well, sure. Real yes. wages are declining. And also uh, real disposable income uh, has declined. In fact, it's been declining every month over the past over the past uh, a year. Those are real numbers. And that's why, yes. again, the Democrats, the administration must really understand how the media is in their corner because they can tweet out they can from the white house podium uh the president can go and talk to labor uh labor workers and and just flat out tell untruths yeah. and and the and the media just has their back i'm reminded again you know uh judiciary chairman senator durbin this week on the floor of the senate in 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 the judiciary committee uh, saying things like Justice Jackson, now Supreme Court Justice Jackson, uh, was lied about, uh, uh, her treatment was unfair, as if he just completely misremembers ah, Kavanaugh, yeah. Amy, Co Co uh, Amy Coney Barrett, and uh, just Justice and, Gorsuch. And, and frankly, his own, you know, not even talking about Supreme Court justices, but his own behavior in terms of sure. harassing organizations. Right, but, but, but my point is, my point in both these these situations, both Justice Jackson, Judge Jackson, but also the economy, is there is no fourth estate. There is no media oh, holding uh, elected officials accountable. This gets into, this is the thing you and I talked about yesterday, which was this thing in Chicago, uh, Ann Applebaum and oh my goodness, uh, Judd yes. Legum. Uh, at this event talking about, in fact, I want to, I want to hold off on talking about the, the Biden, uh, the Hunter Biden laptop thing for a second, because I want, I want to ask you a question. I'm going to ask you a policy question. 
And it's something I want to talk about after we have Amber Athey on, and maybe we have to have a whole show to this. But someone said something to me with regards to this whole student, yeah, said to me with regards to this whole student loan debt repayment issue. You know, why are we why are we talking about student loan debt forgiveness? If the Democrats really want to seize on something, and I'm saying this to you, Jerry, because you're the editor of Real Clear Health, how come we're not talking about medical debt forgiveness? Uh, in the face of, uh, in the face for, for cancer patients or those who are getting treatment for terminal illnesses. I, I mean, this is sorry, but also, but also you can, you can widen it out. Why aren't we talking about all of the private practices uh, that went under or, or almost went under, yeah. but for, remember the Trump administration, the mm. uh, health and human services, HHS had a program where it worked in tandem uh, with other, other, other parts of the administration, USDA and other parts of the administration, uh, where they did two things. Number one, they expanded broadband to allow for an explosion of telehealth, uh, digital oh, yeah. health, right? Number one. Number two, uh, what they did was something called the Provider Relief Fund. And that is if you were a physician's group and you were told no more elective surgeries, no more health care, <laughs> Uh, you this 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 fund, a pr- public fund, but with private uh, pri- uh, private partners uh, saved private market medicine in this country. So my point is, is we should be talking about this. Why aren't we forgiving uh, 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 the the debts and the and, and the physician uh, money's lost and all the rest of it? It gets to it, it gets to something you and I talked about during the the at the height of the pandemic. Well, you know the answer to that, by the way. You already know the answer. Yeah, which is go ahead. And which, say is, it. which is they want to write this big celebratory White House uh, briefing this week, where Obama came back to celebrate oh. the Affordable Care Act again. Again, the media in their back pocket. The Affordable Care Act skyrocketing premiums. Yeah. Millions of Americans lost their doctors and lost their coverage, and yet they have the audacity uh, to celebrate it. What it did do was expand the roles of Medicaid. That's what it, Obamacare yes. did. It, it was a situation, right, in which, and we and, and we said this, you know, at the five-year anniversary of the Affordable Care Act, right? If if your if your metric is how many people are insured, right? Sure. You know, then then which is a which is an insane metric. Right. It is it is a, a metric that, that has no bearing on the healthcare provision to Americans. But if you're going to essentially uh, you're going to um, um, mandate that people buy a product. Right. You have to buy this under sure. penalty of law. Uh, but if you can't afford it, we're going to give you a massive subsidy or we're going to give it to you for free for free. Um, then it's not any great shakes. It's not no. some kind of policy success if more people get the product that you're either mandating, subsidizing, or giving away for free. Yes. Right? If, if, if more people don't get that product, well, well, then then you clearly we're doing something wrong. But that is no, absolutely listen, there, Jerry. There is this alarming like boss, trend, Jerry. Yeah. It's like a boss. Anyway, <laughs> I was gonna there, make up. But, but there Sorry, there is this alarming trend in in, in medicine in in our healthcare system uh, where we see reform, a uh, true reform. Only if it's a public sector action. And yeah. again, all the great reforms in the last 15 years, 20 years, have been public-private partnerships, uh, where the private sector, uh, discipline, competition, innovation, partners with the subsidies needed in some instances and safety net needed in many instances. And what's and the reason why we're not seeing the health sector 
um, rescued, so to speak, from the Biden administration or them even talking about it is because they want a full takeover. They want a Canadian style, uh, UK style uh, uh, medicine in this country. And what's dangerous about that is, again, talk to a sick person from Canada or the UK and they'll tell you they don't get care. There's no access to medicine, no access to innovative cures or new therapies. And, and if you know, talk to a healthy person, they love it. Talk to a sick person, a sick person, and they're terrified. But that's what they want to bring to the U.S. Yeah, one hundred percent, without yeah. without a doubt, it, it is it is not about it. And as we predicted, incidentally, it's not about getting people medical care. Uh, and as we had talked about, all of the things that were driving physicians out of the practice of medicine are, are continuing to happen. And it's sure the, the problem is, has just gotten worse. Look, Let I mean, me- Vox, Vox, which is a left center uh, uh, political journal, had a had an excellent piece two or three days ago talking about how there is a massive uh, uh, a massive shortage of medical workers, in particular physicians and nurses. Yes. I mean, even I mean, <laughs> this is a real problem. And it's 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 funny because I've, I've talked about this. I've tweeted about it. Um, we haven't we spent a little bit of time on the radio talking about this. Um, and I'll tell you what's not going to solve the problem. I'll make a bold statement. Joe Biden. Well, yes, that's true. But I, I, you know, you have these things called PAs, physicians assistants. Yes, yes, who yes. Who now yes. want to be called assistant physicians or or associate physicians, and that's not going to solve the problem. In fact, that'll make it worse. Tell you what, Jerry, uh, let, it, it, it's time for our uh, expert advice Excellent. segment. So let's go and uh, bring on uh, uh, Amber Athy. Excellent. Expert advice. Well, welcome to our expert advice segment. Actually, we're going to combine them today. Uh, so right now, you're also you're also going to hear us say we're also going to do our rip from the headlines segment. Ripped from the headlines. And joining us today to do both uh, our our headlines and our our expert to get our expert advice uh, is Amber Athy. Amber is the Washington editor of The Spectator. Uh, very recently, up until very recently, uh, was a host uh, with uh, WMAL in Washington, D.C. on a show called O'Connor and Company with our good friend Larry O'Connor, uh, as well as our friend uh, Julie Gunlock. Uh, yeah. and, and Amber, listen, before we get into the whole story here, um, you I, I, we actually want to open this up. You, you wrote a really great piece this week about being in a sport and competing against guys, this is something Jerry and I have talked about long before the, the latest controversy with the U- university talking about Amber and her competing in sports. What do you, what do you mean? Well, Amber, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, the piece was about my experience in club field hockey at Georgetown university. And for people who aren't familiar club is basically in between intramural and D one. So sure. it's, sort of middle of the road you still compete against other schools and there's a national championship every year but it's not as competitive and doesn't have the funding stream that division one sports have but still you know really fun time I was the president of the club hockey team and what was really interesting and what kind of informed a lot of my opinions about the transgender women in sports debate is that we actually had men on our team And it was rather unusual. I think we were actually the only sport or at least the only club sport that had uh, mixed gender. And the reason being is that field hockey is very popular overseas for men, Uh, like in Ireland and Australia, men's teams are are very common and and really, really popular. So we had a lot of international students. And so Georgetown and other schools in the area and the national field club field hockey association 
decided to let men play on the team. And usually we would end up actually getting guys from the U S who were cut from other sports and just wanted to like hang out with girls and keep playing sports. <laughs> but uh, what was interesting about it is we had some pretty specific rules as to how many guys were allowed to be on the field at a time. And you were only allowed to have two on the field at any given moment during the game. And then sometimes you would even have to cut that back to one, depending on how many guys the other team had. And we always had these conversations with the guys before we actually played in our games about safety too, because it was pretty common where newer guys to the sport didn't really understand just how faster and stronger they were than the women. So they'd be charging down the field with the ball and just like knocking girls out, like trucking them because the girls weren't really agile enough sure. to know how to get out of the way. Wow. So, Go ahead. So I mean, it, it, it underscores that regardless of whether or not you are a Supreme Court justice nominee who can't define a woman, <laughs> um, that there are, listen, even if you're not a biologist, if you are just a guy playing, you know, club level field hockey, you understand the difference between men and women, don't you? It's super obvious. And none of us were trying to make a political statement by saying that only two guys could be on the field at a time. It was just it was a safety issue. It was a sure. competition issue. And we had guys that would, like I said, come over after being cut from club soccer, for example. Yeah. And they would have never played field hockey before in their life. They'd pick up a stick, be super awkward for maybe two weeks. And then all of a sudden they were the best player on the team. It was just <laughs> inevitable because right. their base athletic ability is so far beyond that of a woman. And it was, it was, again, it was so obvious to everyone involved that it kind of blows my mind that this is even a debate that people are having. It, it's interesting to me because I've long said, right. So understanding that the NCAA is a, is an association that deals with collegiate level sports. We now know that the prevailing wisdom, and for those of you who are listening, I'm putting wisdom in air quotes, the prevailing wisdom on university campuses is that there are more than two genders. Um, however you want to define those. I don't understand why these universities themselves being driven by woke politics aren't calling for the NCAA to institute a whole new categories of genders for sports. I mean, if, if, if what they're saying is factual, uh, they believe that it's factual and that it should be the prevailing norm, then they should be creating these categories. Uh, anyway, your, your thoughts on this. Well, I have a little bit of insight into this, actually, because the current chair of the NCAA commission, um, as I understand it, is the president of Georgetown University, which is where I went to school. Oh, wow. yeah, yeah. Okay. His name is, his name is uh, John DeJoya, and he is sort of an expert at caving to woke mobs. <laughs> this is, uh, th that's his history as a president, really. Um, he was the president when I was there from 2012 to 2016, and there were a whole host of issues that you would never expect a Catholic university to get involved in. And he was just constantly like, all right, sure. Have whatever you want. Just please don't protest. Um, we, so that um, was, that's, that's the way that he uh, responds to people being upset with him is to just give in. So it's not really all that surprising that he would be involved in this. And then I think it's a similar answer for other university administrators as well. They've never really learned how to deal with the temper tantrums that the woke students on campus yeah. throw. They don't understand that if they give in, they're not actually appeasing them. They're incentivizing them they're to here. continue that type of behavior. And that and that's true in corporate culture. That's true in radio. Oh. We'll get to that. But, you know, yeah. it's funny, you know, 
uh, Andrew knows, knows this, but I, I coach uh, high school sports. And so I've coached women's track and field. I've coached men's track and field. I've coached uh, 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 football. And a couple, a couple of years ago, we had a young lady, um, a freshman, uh, uh, come out for the team. And we, you know, we were a small school, Catholic school. And so the uh, athletic director asked me to make, a, uh, make an exception and, and let her come on. She weighed 80 pounds um, and she was much smaller and slower than even her, her freshman uh, peers. And what happened was we would have to, and we had to be careful how we did it because we, we wanted to be honest with her and, but also encourage her to want to participate and, and, and be part of a team. And I couldn't figure out if she was doing this because she loved football or because she wanted to make some kind of statement. And so, you know, and, and everything's political today. But we quickly, we quickly discovered that uh, she was in jeopardy every time she was uh, in sure. a not not just on the field uh, playing a game, uh, which you know, which she would never do until the fourth quarter, and then she'd be in a position on the kickoff, and you know, somewhere where, where we could literally tell other kids to protect her. But in practice during drills, uh, it was a, it was a, it was a hazard, and. Also in track and field, you know, the, uh, the, the girls and the boys, we practice together and there's a, there, there is a, there is They're a track too. Yeah. And there's a great rivalry sometimes where the girls want to beat the boys and boys want to beat the girls sort of a thing. Uh, but in, 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 in 10 years of coaching track and field, I've only had one, one female athlete, uh, who, uh, who was the, uh, best athlete, uh, in terms of all around athleticism, but still couldn't beat our best boy yeah. in the 100, the 200 or the 400. Uh, but so, and again, it's, it's, it's this point where those who aren't coaching, those not engaged, those who don't have to care about the safety and the well-being of, the, of their, of their, of their athletes, we get this. It's, it's the administrators and, and those in, 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 in you know, in, in position of, of power, and I don't want to say one, and, I, and I, I'm hogging this, but I got, right, com- I got a comment about Georgetown. So, so I yes. went for- I, hold on time, time out for a second, Amber. I was, I'm waiting for this because Jerry and I might, I have a daughter who was very interested in Georgetown and Jerry had some very pointed thoughts. Yeah. About and, Georgetown. And, and God, God bless you. <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm a I'm a Fordham guy. I went to Fordham University. Uh, I'm probably going to agree with everything that you said. Well, I mean, I don't think Georgetown so, any, any money. So <laughs> I graduated uh, <laughs> a very long time uh, uh, b- before you, uh, and and uh, and and I got into got into uh, Georgetown. Got into Fordham. I want to go to Fordham. I'm from the city. I, I'm a Bronx guy. I wanted to go to the Fordham. My mother was furious with me. She wanted me to go to Georgetown. Anyway, long story short, uh, the the Catholic Catholic schools. I, you know, my, all my kids have gone to Catholic school, Catholic grammar school, Catholic high school, Catholic college. I have two daughters now at Catholic university. Anyway, but we went, I, we wanted to check out Georgetown. It's, it's local, you know, it's a good, you know, good Jesuit Jesu school. I like the Jesuits still. I, even though I shouldn't, I still like them, but here's the thing. And I want to comment on this or, or not comment. So we went to visit Georgetown and Georgetown is a beautiful campus and it, and it has a wonderful history uh, and, and uh, an alum and all the rest of it. You know what the first thing they showed us when we came to campus? The very first thing. Let her guess, Jerry, because I bet she gets it on a guess. Amber, what do you think they showed on the first? Oh, God, that's a good question. Uh, Given what we've been talking about. The basketball stadium. They showed showed us the very first thing. They brought us to the transgender dorms. (laughs) What? Yes. (laughs) 
The tra- we went to a dorm that that <laughs> Here, was uh, all of you good Catholics who want to come and join the Georgetown. It was, it was the very oh my god. Here was okay, the very that first thing. I will say that did not exist when I was there. I don't oh, know. Wow. If it was a complained, but it was a it was a dorm that was uh, set aside for transgendered uh, wow. students or or allies. Um, but I remember sitting there. And thinking to myself, like all the other parents are like, oh, this is wonderful. And the thing is, it wasn't like it was a great dorm. We were in like a kitchen that hadn't been cleaned. It was like, a, you know, you know how they have um, they have suites and yes. on a floor, there's right. a kitchen. It was one of those things. And it was it was a mess. And I remember raising my hand and saying, all right, I'm sorry. This is it. This is the first place you take us to a, to a, to a kitchen that wasn't clean last night in a transgender dorm. And I looked around at the other parents. I'm like. Am I the only one who like <laughs> finds it strange? And then my daughter was mortified, but um, sure. regardless, but it goes to the, it goes to the, it goes to the point where, where everything is political and, and we've just kind of lost ourselves. And I'll be Every, quiet. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah well, yes. I'm, I'm just mind blown because there were definitely no transgender dorms when I was at Georgetown. Otherwise I probably would have been like arrested for protesting them. <laughs> <laughs> but so, I mean, that's the thing. Georgetown's not really, it's Catholic. We call it Catholic in name only because yeah. they don't actually you know. abide by any of the things we're supposed to believe in. So, so okay. So you you graduate. You're in D.C. Let's open it up. Let's talk about this. Um, you're you're working for where were you before you were at the Spectator? Where were you? I was at the Daily Caller for That's it. about three years. Yeah, it, it's because uh, someone had said to me. Um, uh, a colleague in DC, I said that I was having you on. I'm like, oh, she was at the Daily Call. I'm like, no, no, she's at the Spectator now and, and hadn't heard the, the news. Uh, how did you link up with our good friend, Larry? Um, uh, this whole O'Connor, you know, as, as we said, good friends with Julie Gunlock as well. Jerry and I both worked with her for a long time. Um, and, and also, I mean, uh, Derek Hunter was at the Daily Caller and Tucker. Yeah. Tucker yep. was one of the founders, right? Of uh, and and, yep. and Derek's husband Club. Heather is someone. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Jerry, Jerry and I both. Yeah. Anyway, so 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 go ahead. So so you're at you're at there. How did this how did this all happen? How did you wind up over at uh, WMAL? I actually started guest hosting about three years ago, back when I was still at the Daily Caller, because wow. Vince Colonnais, who now hosts the afternoon show, was on mornings with Mary Walter. Yes. Oh, yeah. And when Mary would have, you know, vacation or sick days, I would sometimes come in and fill in for her. And that was how I first got affiliated with MAL. And then um, this past winter, when they flipped around the schedule and put Vince in the afternoon and were moving Larry to the mornings, they had this idea where they wanted to have a couple of rotating co-hosts on with Larry. And they knew that they wanted a couple of women or three women they didn't know exactly how it was going to be structured yet so they had a few of us I think maybe five to ten women come in and guest host over the course of about three to six months and I was brought in uh, on that because of course I had already been guest hosting a decent amount and around the summer they started to finalize that they thought it was going to be three people there were going to be two women doing two days a week one woman doing one day a week and October 1st, I think, was our official start date. So I yeah. was the Wednesday, Thursday morning co-host. Julie, um, your friend, was Monday, Tuesday, and Patrice Unwuka's Friday. And that yeah. was our, our rotating schedule that we would do every week. 
Yeah, we've had. Uh, I've also had Patrice on on my show. I think Jerry's had her on on his show as as well. well Ju- Ju- Julie has been on my show a couple of times. Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, Julie Gunlock, who has I think one of the best names in in media. Yeah. Uh, in That's a really media. good name. Although I will uh, say this, uh, Amber has never been a guest on my show, and I feel very insulted by this. Oh yeah. By the way, Jerry wants you. Jerry wants you to be on his show on Sunday, but we'll we'll get to get to well, that. So, some Sunday, yes, yeah, of course. Yes. Um. But so okay. So we know I, I, Jerry, I, how do I want to say this as diplomatically as possible? Uh, you know, so then we'll don't ask, let me say it. No, we'll ask you, we'll ask you this, this, this question. So we know from other folks that there has been a, in, in corporate structures with corporate talk radio. Now, WMAL is a, um, uh, I'm going to say a legacy conservative talk station. It is a station known for its conservative talk. We know that successful conservative talk can sometimes be controversial. We know that the best talk radio comes from people having opinions and sticking to those opinions and wanting to talk to those opinions. But we also know that in corporate America and with corporate-driven radio, there are now new pressures that are being put on them. Before this all happened, were you guys getting any having any discussions with folks, I will say, above the production level about... Um, uh, about content and tone or, and, and social media. And, 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 social, and well, we'll yeah. get to the social media in a minute. I want to talk about the on-air content for a moment. All right. Yeah. So I don't know how much I can say without getting sued. So uh, I'll, okay. speak in rather, <laughs> I'll, defamatory. I'll speak in rather vague terms. Yes, um, of course. I never, I never heard anything directly from corporate. And I think that's by nature of me being a part-time co-host. That makes sense. Um, but we did occasionally hear things from people within the MAL building. And specifically, there was some talk about how we were supposed to present vaccines, for example. Mm. Um, or how we were supposed yes. to. Yes. Yeah. I wish I had um, a bell. <laughs> but I kind of played ignorant because since I didn't have those conversations directly with corporate, sure. I would just kind of pretend that I didn't hear anything. So if you go back and listen to the way that I talked about the vaccines on air, I don't think it was probably in keeping with what they really wanted. Um, oh. But I never got in trouble for it. Nobody ever said anything to me. So I just kept doing it. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, again, I, Jerry, I know we don't want to talk about our own experiences here. At least I, 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 I don't. Um, but, you know, given that my, my co-host is the editor of Real Clear Health, my co-host here on the show is the editor of Real Clear Health. One thinks that he would have, uh, a a great understanding of the breadth of the subject. Now I'm I'm listen. In addition to my radio stuff, I've got a background in in academics. I've got a background in public policy. So I tend to talk with you know in with in detail a, about such issues. As does Jerry. So that's that's really that's really interesting. So what about this? Jerry asked about about social media policy. What were, what were you told about social media? Well, I knew there was a policy. Everybody gets a corporate employee handbook when they sign their contract. And I read it and it seemed like it probably wouldn't apply to me. I mean, the only portion of the social media policy that seems, I suppose, like you could even possibly violate it by accident because like everything else, you have to be kind of an idiot to violate certain parts of the social media policy, (laughs) right? Like it has to, it has to be very obviously horrible, whatever you said, but there's one portion of it that is intentionally vague so that they have cover basically to fire you if they don't like what you tweet. So that's the part where it says you, you just can't be funny. 
yeah, you can't make jokes. No humor. But it says something along the lines of, you know, you can't say anything that brings like reputational harm to yourself or to the company or something. So that's like a CYA kind of policy that they threw in there so that they can fire you for cause, even if you didn't break any of the actual real policies that they're talking about. So you could say I'm a Red Sox fan and that brings great shame upon you and the state and the yeah, station no, exactly. and you lose listen, your job. Listen, I'm, yeah. I'm, well, you know something, I'll say this, Jerry, right? I mean, if you were at, uh, let's say, let's say you were at a, a radio station uh, in in New York and you tweeted out that you were a Red Sox fan. I'm, I'm wondering if that would, if that might apply here. That's uh we'll, we'll give it. It could, it could probably apply to anything because that's a yeah. totally subjective judgment about reputational harm, of course. Amber, where are you from? I'm from Frederick, Maryland. You oh. are. Hey. Oh, no kidding. Mm-hmm. So yeah, my all my all my kids go to uh, go to jo- uh, St. John's Catholic Prep in Buckystown. Okay, yeah. I'm yeah so I had a lot of friends that went there. I'm actually supposed to be hosting a gubernatorial primary. You're not going to do it. It's on Good Frederick. Friday. On Good Friday, so you know it's. It yeah. shouldn't be doing it on Good Friday. You should be home. Uh, 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 Being good, uh, yes. Uh, repenting of your <laughs> sins. <laughs> well, instead, I'll be I'll be I'll be serving penance by uh, moderating so, a gubernatorial. Only because I'm I'm, inter- <laughs> I'm interested in where folks are from. So, may I ask what what high school you went to? I went to Walkersville High School. Oh, very good. Okay, excellent. Mm-hmm. All right. So, yeah. So, is that a and, public school? It is. Public it is school, public. Yes. Oh yeah, because yeah, you, you'll get Jerry started on his rants about public school in a second. Well, well I'll, not I'll, great. I'll, <laughs> I'll say I'll say this though because. We 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 all we've been a DC centric family. So I mean, I, I was at Pharma. Uh, I, I worked for a member of Congress. So we were we're in we're in uh, Upper Montgomery County. And so, but since we've been here, we moved from from the New Jer- from North Jersey. We've been DC uh, DC centric, you know. So that's where we went out to dinner. This is where where I went to work and all the rest of it. Uh, and then uh, and then uh, you know with with how the economy has changed and I went into consulting and radio and all the rest of it I do most most of that all of my policy work and writing I do I do it from home uh, and then uh, and then though I started to coach and so we kind of sh- shifted and we're now very de- uh, Frederick centric and I'll say this for our listeners who are in Maryland I think Frederick's a, a, a great little city restaurants and uh, and the, the, the main avenues there they have uh, two record record shops where I've been able to find vintage of first prints of some great albums. So Frederick's cool. I like Frederick very much. Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed growing up there. Yeah. I really did. It's good. So, so, okay. Now from what I understand, right. If I'm understanding the story correctly, it wasn't even this tweet, the, the tweet about Kamala Harris. Well, can, um, can we, can we, what do you set the context? What was the tweet? And, and go ahead, Andrew. Well, well, this is what I'm going to get to this, Jerry. Right, very it, was, good. it was not that tweet. It was not that tweet that got her fired. It was not that tweet that brought the initial ire, right? Amber, oh, I'm sorry, you're right, Jerry. Uh, so Amber tweets out a tweet of <laughs> a, a, a picture of Kamala Harris at uh, the Vice President of the United States at the State of the Union wearing this brown outfit. And Amber, right? You said you said uh, you know. Well, uh, she looks. Did you say she looks like a UPS driver, or did yeah, you just say? So I, yeah. So I didn't have a picture of her attached to the tweet, and maybe that was my mistake because ah. I left the door open for people oh, to, to misinterpret. You're not. A, you're not a prop comic. But it was an intent. Yeah. It was an intentional misinterpretation. So I don't even yes. like to say like people misunderstood sure. the tweet because they did it on yeah. purpose. It's not like people misunderstood what I was saying. But the tweet was during the state of the union i mean you can look at the timestamp and the date on yeah. it and it's very obvious what i was talking about and it was i have it pretty much down to memory at this point because i've repeated it so many times over the past week All but right. it's uh no it's fine 
Kamala looks like a UPS employee. What can Brown do for you? Nothing good, apparently. That uh, was the tweet. That was it. And again, that that UPS is a slogan. It's a and, famous, and, famous slogan. And UPS yeah. and UPS complained to you because you dared suggest that Kamala Harris <laughs> was a was a right. UPS driver. Yeah, if anything, it's insulting to UPS to think that say. Kamala could do their job. And but. I thought maybe it could also be construed as a Willie Brown joke, but that, you know. No. Some people have pointed that out to me, and unfortunately, yeah. I am apparently not that clever, but <laughs> I think that's hilarious. Well, like, time out for a second. Before we get into this, I mean, that was a really strange State of the Union in a lot of ways. Uh, and and because I came in for some crap, I tweeted out, do you remember there was that moment, Amber, where where Nancy Pelosi gets up and does yes. this weird fist bump. Yeah, that's it. The fist rub shimmy thing. Yeah. And and I and I tweeted out with a and I went oh. and found I, I actually went back. We live in ridiculous filmed, times. I filmed it with my phone on the TV and then and then tweeted out that and and I got I got a tremendous amount of crap from a, a from a, a, a Hollywood guy who was very upset that I dared sort of suggest there was something weird about that very <laughs> weird shimmy. But so it was a very strange state of the union as it was. So, okay. So you tweeted that out, but that's not what got you in trouble. Is it? There was another, another tweet that someone complained about. And then somebody went back to your tweets. What? Yeah. So what happened was, I mean, initially the Kamala tweet performed fine. Like it definitely didn't go viral or anything. It wasn't yeah. one of my most family like tweets. In, in fact, very little attention was, I mean, relatively yeah. speaking, it was, I think it, it had maybe 700 likes, I yeah. mean, like nothing crazy. No. Um, and then a couple of replies of people being like, Oh, that's so funny. And then a couple of days later, there was this uh, situation going on at the university of North Texas. And I, I really yes. want to like get into what's going on here because this Please. is the longest program that I've actually been on. So I can fully explain it. Take but your time. Th- yes. So the university of North Texas, there's a student there by the name of Kelly Neidert. I think that's how you say your last name. And um, I had written about this previously, actually, about the fact that she was harassed by students for printing out flyers for this event that she was hosting through the Young Conservatives of Texas. Yes. And the event that she was hosting was with a guy named Jeff Younger. And Jeff Younger is running for the Texas State House. Yes. As a Republican. And he's running on the issue of medical transition for transgender children. And this is a very personal issue for him because he actually lost custody of his son because his wife, ex-wife, had convinced the courts that the son was actually a daughter. And she was dressing him up in dresses and trying to get this child to transition the father was against all of this, and so he ended up losing custody. And other under circumstances, right? A, you know, at a different time, this would have been grounds for the mother to lose custody. But let's yeah, yeah. not even yeah, go there. Go exactly. ahead. Yeah. So the University of North Texas, the conservatives there wanted to have Jeff Younger on campus to speak about this issue, and they were printing out flyers that said, I think something like ban transgender it wasn't even that mean it was yeah. it was less mean than that i'm trying to remember exactly what it said it was something about banning transitions for trans kids something like that people freaked out had a meltdown i wrote about it because the unp president actually sent out an email chastising the conservatives for printing out these flyers and being hateful blah 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 a few days later they have the event and uh there's a huge massive protest 
And at the end of the night, it gets so bad that police have to escort this student, Kelly, and Jeff Younger off of campus in their police cars. Uh, Kelly's like hiding in a broom closet at one point because people are yelling at her and threatening her and chasing her. The police car finally gets them in and is leaving campus. There's a whole horde of students that try to like jump in front of the police car to stop it. And the police car ends up hitting one of them. Oh and my so goodness. of course, naturally that becomes the left headline. Is, oh, oh my God, God, the police ran over a transgender student. Um, Completely missing all of the context leading up to this. Sure. So now we get to the Twitter battle. There's a guy named Stephen Monticelli, who is a freelance journalist for Daily Beast, Yahoo News, Rolling Stone. And he's been covering this issue pretty heavily. And he's very activist-y. He actually wrote a piece for the Daily Beast about the college students who were putting this on. It was like a hit piece about college students, which I thought is really weird and not very journalistic-y at all. Sure, yes. Um, so he gets in, the, in an argument with Matt Walsh from the Daily Wire. <laughs> okay. And Matt Walsh sort of intimately like against transgenderism yes of course and, well he's traveled and, the world trying to uh, figure out the definition of what a woman is <laughs> yes. right, right? Yeah. so he was talking he was responding to Stephen Monticelli and I had was familiar with this guy from writing about the UNT situation and I responded to it something like this guy's a creep he's writing about college students it's weird and Stephen Monticelli jumps in and starts talking about how the police ran over a transgender kid and it just spirals into this debate about the idea of like putting kids on puberty blockers or surgical interventions, all this crazy stuff that we would normally call child abuse. Right. Well, his, his followers start going through all of my tweets and are like, nope, this girl's got to go. We don't like her. They oh, yeah. find the Kamala tweet. They screenshot it. They send it to Stephen Monticelli, who probably posted on his Twitter page to his tens of thousands of followers saying that it's racist because the what can Brown do for you comment was obviously about Kamala's skin color, not her outfit. And that was the impetus for people then sending the tweet to my employers, both at the Spectator and at MAL, specifically the ownership, Cumulus Media. And that was sort of where all of the backlash began was over this transgender issue that wasn't even related to the State of the Union tweet at all. They yeah. just were searching for something that they could use against me. And that ended up being the thing that they found. And how long did it take from when they sent Cumulus the screenshot of Kamala Harris tweet for you to get the phone call? And was there any conversation beforehand about this so you could talk to them about this, explain the context, uh, maybe, uh, anyway, maybe sort of figure out a, a way well short of firing you for making a funny tweet that got uh, uh, 700 likes, by the way. Yeah, so that's another weird part of the story because the backlash on Twitter lasted for maybe two days, if that. I mean, in terms of like social media scandals, it was a pretty light one, in my opinion. I've had people come after me before. This is like nothing. <laughs> but um, that was on March 3rd and 4th, I think, that they were sending emails. And I, I can't imagine they got more than like a dozen, if that, sure. because The Spectator, my main employer, got one email. Yeah. So like how many did the cumulus get? Two, maybe? Yeah, right. <laughs> well, yeah. it all blew over. So I thought by the by Monday, everything was fine, except that Wednesday I hosted the program and nobody thought anything was off or amiss. And later that afternoon, around three or four o'clock, I got a phone call with a 202 number, which is the DC area code. 
usually when I get a number like that, I'm like, oh, it's like somebody from Congress or something, you know, some comms director. And um, they told me that it was Jeff Bowden, who's the uh, vice or the vice president of DC Cumulus Operations. Yeah. And then the other woman on the call was Kristen Fancellas, who is vice president for HR. And as soon as I heard HR, I was like, oh, shoot, that's it. Yeah. I'm in yeah. trouble for something. You, by the way, you can curse. You can say shit if you want to. Okay, well, my, great. What, what, but my my mother's watching now. So yeah, your mother. But your <laughs> mother, I think, would agree that in this case, saying "oh yes. shit" would probably be the right way. <laughs> yeah, my Go mom's ahead. probably watching too. But um, <laughs> I'll I'll keep it I'll keep it G. It's okay. <laughs> no. So I I knew that something was wrong, um, but I still didn't think that I was going to be fired. So they brought up the tweet and they said we were alerted to this tweet. Uh, that you made <clears throat> and uh, we we you know can't have racism and I was like what okay good yeah I agree we can't have racism yeah I was like all right this was not a racist tweet so end of story Great. yes um and they said and you know unfortunately this has violated our social media policy and they also brought up the fact that I was like mocking the people who were trying to cancel me because I I think cancellation efforts are so stupid that, and I didn't think that anybody was going to take the Kamala tweet seriously as racist. So I was like, Oh, try to cancel me, contact my employers, do what you do. Like good, sure, good sure, luck. Sure. Basically yeah. I was egging them on, you know, whatever. Sure. So they said that the Kamala tweet was racist. The follow-ups were a violation of social media policy and that I was terminated effective immediately. Wow. And I was like, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. This tweet was about Kamala Harris's outfit. You realize that, right? And they clearly had some type of like corporate HR script because they wouldn't actually respond to anything that I was trying to interject. And they just said, okay, so we're going to get you set up with your last pay stub and our relationship ends like right here, right now, you're terminated effective immediately. You don't come back tomorrow. That's it. And I said, after they were done reading their little corporate spiel, can I make a parting statement for the record? Because I think it's really important that you have some record of my opinion on this and what's going on and they said sure and I didn't think they were going to actually listen to me but I just felt like I had to do it so for about three or four minutes I just like went off and I talked about the context behind the tweet I talked about how they were damaging the integrity of the station by giving into this how they were incentivizing future campaigns against their hosts how we spent so much of our programming warning against the excess sure. of wokeness and cancel culture. I mean, how we gave platform to the Virginia parents who were labeled domestic terrorists by the Biden administration. And, and this is in the same vein as that. And just tried to make my voice heard the only way I really knew how in that moment. And when I was done, they just said, okay, thank you. Goodbye. And that was it. I was wow. gone. I mean, it really, it really does underscore. And I think you're absolutely correct in this regard, right? It, in that it incentivizes the woke mob. Um, now, here's the interesting thing. Let me ask you this. And this is, listen, I, I, I don't want to, don't want to sort of revisit the, uh, the. I don't want to. I think calling a trauma is probably not the right word. But did your, did your cancelers do a, a victory lap on on social media? So I actually didn't go public with it immediately. There was okay. a month where I was speaking to some lawyers. Um, and also 
the other hosts at WMAL were really horrified by what happened. And sure. really, we were just trying to get my job back. So yeah. there, I know there were a lot of meetings, a lot of emails sent, phone calls, et cetera. And I, I wanted to let the other hosts kind of do their thing and see what sure. happened. Because I thought, you know, if they won't listen to me, they have these amazing talents who have been with the station for years now, and maybe they'll listen to them. They'll have the respect to listen to them. But n- nothing moved them uh, nothing changed the decision. So that was when I decided to actually share that this has happened. And to answer your question, yes, there are a lot of people celebrating. And um, they want scalps, as of course, as, as of Brad course. Pitt says in Inglorious Bastards. They're gonna they're gonna get their scalps. I mean, listen, I, I, I one of the things that buoys me um, at the very least, and it's 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 small comfort, and I want to be really clear about this is I'm just glad that the other hosts rallied together in your defense and in your support. I I think that kind of internal courage is rare, especially in light of the fact that what this demonstrates is, now I don't know if, and I'm sure you don't want to get into this, I don't know if it's because, you know, folks feel more secure because they're full-time and under contract versus you being a part-timer, but I know that there are other environments and other media environments in which, um, a fellow host gets fired and nobody says, or very few people say anything behind the scenes. Uh, Jerry, did you want to, you want to say something? Well, I mean, a, a couple of things and, and, you know, and Andrew can give witness to this. And that is, I, I hope you stick on this. I hope that you keep on punching back. I hope you're doing this six weeks from now, a year from now. I think anyone involved in your firing, uh, their name should be mud, frankly. Uh, I think that the vice president of of the station of Cumulus, uh, I think his name should become synonymous with cowardice. And and in fact, uh, you know, I, I've read your on. piece. On- Sorry, go ahead. I, wait, wait, uh, no, but, 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 but give witness, yeah. Andrew. You know, Andrew and I get into it where I I want to stay on a topic often. And Andrew likes to move on like he's trying to do right now. And I won't let him. No, 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 but, no, no, no. But, I don't know. No, no, no. But, I don't want to move on, Jerry. I want to get no, clarification. No. Hold on. I have, a, I have a point of clarification. Do sure. you think this was something that was decided at the D.C. level or was this decided above the D.C. level in, in cumulus? Because, Jerry, this gets into what we're talking about in terms of general corporate structures and corporate characters. Do you think that this was something above the, the level of the D.C. VP for operations or was it just in the D.C. cluster? I think that it was higher than them, yeah. but we still don't know to this day sure. who actually made the decision. That's something that we really spent the last month trying to figure out and really just have had no transparency. Um, but by all indications, this was a corporate decision because nobody at the show um, or any of the other you know, programming directors at MAL knew that this was coming and were really sh- as shocked by it as I was. And let me just say um, to the point about making his name mud, I, I 100% agree. And that was kind of yep. my sort of thinking about why I wanted to go public with this. I mean, there are tons of reasons why, like cancel culture is terrible. People need to be made aware of what's going on. Stand up for what's right. I can Stand do up something for the truth. about it. Yeah. But also the fact that they use this social media policy about reputational damage to the company and to myself, my thought was, okay, you thought a couple of emails from people who don't even listen to WMAL is reputational damage. Like I'll show you reputational damage. Let's do that. Let's play that game. And I will 
tar and feather you in front of every conservative who listens but, to you. Let's, but let's go, let's even take it, let's take you out of the equation and what you might do out of the equation, right? I mean, let's just get to this idea of, right? Because this is something that Jerry and I talk about with regards to public policy generally, which is people do things because they think they're going to have X effect, and then it might have, they don't think about the unintended consequences. So what you're saying is a station like Cumulus thinks that, or I'm sorry, a company like Cumulus thinks that there is reputational damage when they get, uh, uh, let's say a, a half dozen emails or even a dozen emails about a tweet that you've done, and maybe some guy from the far left writing about it, and I, I was making typewriter fingers with my hands. What they don't understand is when they fire you, even if you were not to go out and do something, the story is out there. Amber Athey gets fired for making a funny tweet about Kamala Harris's outfit at the State of the Union. That is legitimate. You know, that is, A, there's legitimate reputational damage to cumulus that comes from that. And then, right, the ancillary impact. If the other hosts, and we don't have to go through them by name, but if the other hosts are then afraid to either engage in the marketing side of things by getting involved in social media and not being funny on social media, because I don't know if Cumulus has ever checked, but you know Larry O'Connor's a pretty funny guy. I mean, Larry O'Connor's got that that. No, but, but Andrew, see, it's, it's 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 worse than that because, yeah. and and you and I are 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 involved in politics and policy and the conservative movement. We have been for twenty years. Um, I won't listen to WMAL again. I just won't listen to him. I I I I, I I'm a regular listen, listener to, to to Larry's show. I won't do it because here's the thing: it's all fake. You can't you can't talk about cancel culture and rail against it and and talk about how demeaning it is to our public discourse uh, and then and then have someone be victim of it and then just move on as, as you know. And so and, 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 I, and, I, and I've, I've talked about this with my own radio show. You know, the, the you know, I, I would walk away uh, before I would uh, kneel to you can't talk about this. Don't mention that. Uh, and and I, I would just walk away from it. And then and then I and then I go to Regnery and I get a book deal and I'd write about it and I go on a book tour and talk about it. I mean, so I, I look, I'm an Irish kid from the Bronx. I believe in hitting and hitting hard. I believe in hitting until you win. And I would stay on this until until there's some some satisfaction. You decide what the satisfaction is. But and I'm going to join. I'll talk about this forever now. I'll talk about it on Sunday on my radio show. I mean, I think this is. I think I think that you again, you cannot. It's just Andrew, what's the, the most important attribute in life? It's, loyal, uh, it's loyalty. Yeah, lo it's well, loyalty. Loyalty. Sticking sticking to your sticking to your guns. It's loyalty. And, and here's the thing, you know, um, okay, Jordan. Let me say one, right, one last thing. Jordan Peterson does this real good bit where he talks about when you're betrayed and how how if you're betrayed, it forces you to reconsider everything in connection with the people who betray you. It also forces you to do a self-examination on, on, on who's in your circle, uh, who you trust to be, uh, you know, kind of arm in arm uh, with you. And again, I don't mean to over, uh, be over dramatic here, but man, I, I, I'd want to keep on punching and keep on hitting and keep on talking uh, until 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 there's an appropriate Jerry, um, satisfaction. Is there a danger of punishing the folks who have been loyal to her in this? Right. I mean, I I I, I don't want to punish Larry O'Connor uh, when Larry O'Connor is trying to do the right thing by helping Amber get her job back. I, I don't know the background of it. But I tell you yeah. what, Andrew. Um, 
you know, I, and I told, and I told you several times that I would have gone into the, our, our program director and quit I, um, I, over, over your circumstance. I don't want to, they don't, I most especially don't want to talk about, we'll talk about that. I, I know, I know, say, I know. Me, me either. Say, watch, watch, on, watch. Me, I, I, I get canceled the, next. The, but the real, point real is quick, just to be real quick, real clear. I, Jerry and I had many a conversation <laughs> about this. There is no, there, there is no uh, uh, confusion between what Jerry is talking about and Jerry's in my situation. Jerry and I have, Jerry is, is a brother to me. So I, I believe me, we've talked, but, my, but, but you get my point. My yes. point is, is that I would have gone, you know, I would, I, you know, I, I, I'd go to the edge. I mean, if yes. I had to, I know just, a, yeah. the just us league, believe me, the just a, Amber explain to Amber I invite you. League. I don't know you yet. Maybe <laughs> there's something that, that we've, uh, we've called, we've uh, a, a friend of ours uh, who's in the business. Um, Guy Shepard. Guy Shepard, who uh, uh, who runs a site called Plan Man, he coined this years ago, the Just Us League, uh, and that is a a necessary small group uh, that will that you could call, and uh, and they'll do anything for you. There's a scene in the town, and I'm the movie The Town, where yeah. Ben Ben Affleck's character goes in and says to his friend, um, "I need you to say yes." I need you uh, to ask no questions and I need you to do it right now. And, and, the, and the, his friend looks up at him and says, whose car are we taking? And that's the just us league. It's, it's no questions asked. Whose car are we taking? How are we going to get this done? Amber, let me ask you this um, because, you know, we're, we're at this, we're at this point, you've been off the air now for what, six weeks. Uh, I guess it, that sounds about right. Five or yeah. six, I think. Five or six weeks. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, you, you, did you, did you want to do, so like, I always wanted to do talk radio since I was a teenager. I know Jerry's had it in his blood for a long time. You came to this after college. Did you get, have you gotten in your blood? You, you miss it. You want to, you want to keep doing it. You, you talk, talk a little bit about that. I definitely never thought that I'd be doing talk radio and it kind of happened on accident, but I, yeah. I really enjoyed it. I really loved doing the show. I loved working with Larry and the other ladies. And really appreciated that growing up in this area, I could be on a station that, you know, people from my hometown listen to MAL, sure. people I went to school with, and then like people that I was covering in the government were listening to it as well. So I thought that was really neat. And initially, all I really wanted was my job back. Clearly, that's not going to happen. I've publicly yeah. like shamed these people into oblivion. That's fine. <laughs> I knew that that was what the outcome was going to be when I went public. Um, but look, like, I, I don't know what I want to do. I I'm finishing a book right now. And you so I'm super busy so, anyway. Amber, I'm also an editor at real clear books and culture. So happy to, to uh, review the book or, or promote. The book. <laughs> I already Let have a publisher, but promotion sounds good. Yes, I, yes. And what's, what's really ironic about it is I started writing it about six months ago. Um, and the book is actually about you guys are going to laugh. It's about uh, the woke takeover of corporate media. There you <laughs> go. See, so now <laughs> I have to add a chapter. Andrew, she uh, stole my idea, Andrew, six uh, months I mean, ago. I, 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 she beat you, she beat you us to the punch. Um, so well, that's, that's and obviously you're 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 the Washington editor at at, at the Spectator, which which we 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 love. Yes, uh, absolutely. It's a great website, and you're doing you're doing great work there. Um, let's sort of shift gears a little bit here because I mean the other. Here's the thing that I know. I don't, I'm going to say this. I do miss being on the air, um, uh, having my weekly show, and then doing the fill-in work that I did because there's something to be said for when 
when something pops up in the news, you want to be able to take it to the airwaves and have that that take on it. You, you miss that, don't you? Yeah, I definitely do. And I miss, you know, interviewing local people who were involved in some of the stories and getting to know people. But I also, you know, I've been kind of float toying with this idea. I used to have this podcast called Unfit to Print. And, nice. <laughs> and after, yeah. She's actually, smarter like, than us. New York Times slogan. And uh, now it kind of has a double meaning because I'm literally unfit to air. But I, I don't know. I've had a couple of people ask me about it since I uh, started talking about what happened this week. And I'm kind of toying with the idea of bringing it back after I finish writing the book. So that might be in the cards too. So we'll see. I don't know. I have a few things that I'm kind is of the, playing is around the, with. What is the title of the book? Can you share that with us? So tentatively, it's called The Snowflakes Revolt, uh, colon, The Woke Takeover of Corporate Media. So we'll see if that sticks. But may, so far, may, I the make title. the suggestion that whatever podcast you do, um, it, has, it has some kind of tie-in with the book title. Because that will that yeah. that that will certainly uh, offer offer that that kind of of synergy. I mean, for me, listen, um, I have a I have an undergraduate degree in Russian studies, um, and so to which, be, by the way, he mentions every podcast. So yeah, well, like, I do, <laughs> but but my point is only only because hey, wait, I'm sorry. Where where did you go to college again? I forget. I went to uh, I went to William Mary. Oh, Jerry. that's right. Yeah, yeah that's uh, right. So, you know, uh, but but the point is the my point is that that you know for me to be on the sidelines in terms of terrestrial radio for the last almost two months now uh, has been really has been really hard to take. Um, so we're, we're doing other stuff here. I mean, any particular stories come to mind that you are, that you, that you want to talk about that you haven't been able to talk about on the air? Well, I just published a piece this morning at the spectator. If we want to talk about it, about, um, the don't say gay bill in Florida, but yes. what I think the, yes. so I have oh. a theory and I think that, yes, a lot of these people are just like creepy pedophiles who want to sexualize children and groom them. <laughs> Listen, I, I, I read David French, David French that we said that we can't be saying groomer or grooming. You know, right. So David French said so. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, my article kind of touches on that concept. And after being falsely smeared as a racist and fired for it, I'm not so worried <laughs> about the feelings of people who are grooming uh. children. But, uh, <laughs> but I think there's another more almost more insidious aspect to this and like bear with me i'm gonna lay out the theory please so it used to be that indoctrination of children kind of started at the college level right like sure send your kids off to school and they come home for thanksgiving and all of a sudden they're a blue-haired crazy person and everyone in the family is suddenly racist and like you lose your kids absolutely yes but conservatives started exposing that Yes. Scenario. And so the left has to keep going younger and younger sure, with their indoctrination efforts. Because the the younger you can grab the kid, right? The more easy it is to brainwash them and kind of sure. turn them against their parents. So here's what I think is happening. I think the critical race theory injection into the curriculum is meant to break down the children, challenge their identity. If you're like a white male child, for example, or a white female child then you are inherently oppressive, right? You are marginalizing your classmates and you're bad and you need to feel guilty. Well, then the left comes in with the radical gender ideology. You can pick any of these 30 or 40 weird, like anti-truth gender or sexual identities. And these are safe, good, happy identities. And if you're one of these, then you're on our side again, you're an ally and you're, you're a good yes. person. 
So they built, they break the children down, they build them back up with this weird radical gender and sex ideology. And then they turn them against their parents because the parents are like, what are you doing? Like, this doesn't make any sense. This is weird. And the kid's like, well, you just don't get it because you're a bigot. You know, Mrs. Applebaum said that it's because you hate trans people and you're a transphobe. And I can't believe my own parent doesn't accept my identity. So the parents have two, two choices. They either accept the kid and like the kid becomes one of the little woke social justice warriors or they risk losing the child but standing up for what's right and sure. you kind of get into this bad situation and the kids are all the sure. kids who accept this paradigm are now already leftist and, and and you make a really good point here and that is the parents are put in this very difficult spot where what do you do uh do you do you uh stand uh, for uh truth and and in a loving way, try to bring your child back or or do you just and, and frankly, I, I'm, I, I, we have five children, my wife and I. Right. And what I've noticed, and even in, in our more conservative circles, you know, we, we we go to church on Sunday. I'm a trustee at the church. All my kids go to Catholic school. But even in that bubble, I've seen parents, uh, I, I mean, more than sets of parents who are at this point and they've asked us to pray. And they've said, Jerry, we, we, you know, if, if, if I don't do this, we're going to lose her. Jerry, if we don't accept that, uh, we're going we're gonna to lose him. And right. th- there's this really tough spot. In fact, you know, part of Lent this year, not to get overly religious, but my wife and I have been praying together for these families. There is, and you're right, Amber, there is a targeting of our children. And this is purposeful. Well, and I and think... You- Sorry, let me add to this, Jerry. I'm sorry. And you think, let me fin- let you finish your thought. No, no. And I, I think this piece that, that you, and I haven't read it yet, and I'll put it up. You know, uh, if this is a cultural piece, I can put it, I'll put it up at Books and Culture. Um, uh, this is important. We have to warn parents. I've been saying, you know, Andrew joked early in the program. I, I, you know, I, I recently said on the radio, uh, and I was taking a task for it, uh, that I was being too extreme, but I don't think I am. And that is, I told, get your kids out of public schools now. This is why I made and, a comment earlier. Yeah. And, and I said, get them out. And I said, look, I said, and I've, and I've challenged churches. I, you know, I've had uh, 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 Lori on, on my program at WBAL, but I've talked to my own pastor and, and others. And that is churches have to rally. Yeah. And if, if, yeah. if, if kids can't afford to get into a good private school, the churches have to step up with scholarships or churches have to become pods for homeschooling. Yeah. We, we can't. We can't give up here. And let me let me add to this. I'm I'm, I'm sorry to jump in, Amber, but the That's the okay. issue what we're talking about here is sort of classic Marxist, Leninist, Hegelian, Maoist dialectic. I mean, you pick any of the major communist thinkers and what they were instructing um, um, the 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 movements to indoctrinate young people to tear down the institutions. Uh, of classic Western liberalism, classical liberalism, mm-hmm. um, and to reinstitute them with these sort of these these new uh, radical beliefs, um, and and to get the kids to sort of believe it, right? I mean, there's a reason why uh, you had in the Stalinist era kids denouncing their parents. They were wholly uh, uh, wholly brought in by the state. The Cultural revolution, that, Andrew. The right, Cultural revolution. Yeah. Mao yeah. as well. That's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, well, historically, like the the destruction of the family for the left has been a convenient way to usher in the era of big government and reliance on and dependence on government rather than your communities or your families. 
and also has turned wokeness into the new religion. Oh, yes. Amen. Yes. So there's a big part of that involved, too. Um, Jerry, you said something I really want to hit on. I completely forgot what it was. But um, oh, (laughs) there was an article that I read recently. Uh, I think it was in The Federalist. I wish I could remember who wrote it, but it was incredible because it was from this woman, a parent, whose child started to believe that they were transgender. And it was kind of this situation that you see a lot. And Abigail Schreier wrote about this in her book about the young women who are becoming transgender. And it's like their entire friend group does it because it becomes this trendy thing. It's contagion, yeah. Right. So this woman's daughter was involved in this sort of friendship where she started to want to become a boy. And I, I, I can't remember the exact details, but basically this mom immediately pulled her daughter out of public school, put her in therapy with like someone with a religious background, started taking her to church. She took away her phone, her internet, and like basically almost isolated this girl. And a lot of people would look at that and say, well, that's abusive. Like, why aren't you just accepting of what your daughter feels? But within, I think, a few months, like six months, yeah, the daughter no longer believed that she I, was transgender. And it was just this outside influence that was really trying well, to, like, drive I, her I, into this. I remember that story. Look, um, I, I, I saw this recently, and that is the World War II generation, less than 1% identified uh, today uh, what we would consider uh, trans or, or, you know, the LGBTQ um, uh, uh, mindset. It was less than 1%. And then the baby boomers uh, was a little less than 2%. The next generation was 4%. Next generation was 10. Today it's 20%. 20% of young people identify not, not, not as, not as homosexual or, yeah. but just kind of on the, on spectrum, the spectrum of queer. Of, and again, what, yes, what they use. queer, yeah. exactly right. And, 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 and this is something that is, um, uh, there's a there's a there's a contagion to it. It's yeah. it's your friends are doing it, and therefore we're doing it. And it's not necessarily even a um, a, 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 it's not about sexuality even. It's about it really is about identity and and about um. And you said this, and you're 100 right. It's about it's a new religion. You know, I yeah. said this. Uh, I'll be real quick. I, I I was at a media dinner recently, and, and Amber, we're going to put you on our salon list. We do these dinners on occasion. Real Clear Politics, where we, we bring yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, I've been to one. They're oh, great. Oh, right, very good. So, so, um, so maybe we've met. When was the last one? When, when was the last salon dinner you were at? Uh, I I can't remember the woman's name, but she was like a she had written a book about healthcare. Yes. Um, I have the book on my shelf over here somewhere. Okay. Yeah. I bet you. I bet you. I was I, there. I've, I've met um David. David yeah, David. Yeah. Okay, David. Yeah, David is good. Jerry, David's Jerry, good guy. Jerry, Jerry doesn't wear his Under Armour T-shirts at the salon dinner. So. <laughs> no, I don't. Anyway, uh, Dave and I have been friends for 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 twenty years. Okay. He's a good guy. Anyway, um, uh, so uh, uh, anyway, we're at the the most recent salon dinner. Uh, we had an aftertime, and we were having a glass of wine. It's very casual, and an anchor from a from a from a from a cable uh, a cable um, venue said to me, "What is up with you, Republicans?" and don't say gay. Why do you want to force your religion on us? And I looked at him and I said, the bill was seven pages. Did you read it? He said, no, I trust my colleagues and my, and my staff and whatever else. And I said, well, I said, look, I said, I actually read the bill on air. Um, and it's very simple what it does. Here's what it does. And I will, you know, our audience knows what it does because we talked about it a myriad times, but I said to him, I said, I tell you what, I said, I'm not going to convince you. You're not going to convince me, but why don't we find a neutral position? That is this. I won't promote or work to promote biblical sexual ethics in public schools. 
that's religion, right? Um, I won't promote uh, the idea of a biblical marriage, one man, one woman forever. That's religion. Let's keep biblical sexual ethics out of the public schools. Can you agree to do the same thing with identity politics? Because it is, it's a religion. So let's just be neutral. Let's teach kids how to read and write. Uh, let's teach them history. Let's teach them science. And then let their parents uh, and their mentors, and as they get older, they can make their own decisions here. I mean, and he didn't have much of a response, but I mean, I, I think that's a, a decent argument. Let's, let's say, let's just call schools neutral. You know what I mean? Like when we were kids, we played tag. There was always home. There was always like home base where you were yeah. protected. Schools Let me ask you like this, home base. Jerry, I don't think I've asked you this question before. I, I, uh -oh. I, don't, I don't think I did. And Amber, I'm going to ask this to you because I went back recently and was thinking about this. I could not tell you with the exception of maybe you and I did talk about this last week with the exception of my third and fourth grade teacher who was the same person because she changed grades uh, that year. I could not tell you anything about the personal lives and the marital status or the dating status of just about any of my teachers from kindergarten through, through high school and sometimes even into college. But I mean, Jerry, you, did you ever know what, what, well, I know I was taught by a lot of, I was, I was like a lot of, a lot of brothers and nuns. Yes, so yeah, they, okay. they're, all, they're all married to Jesus. Yeah, so yes. Yeah. Okay. But, no, but your point is you're right. Amber, what about I did you, not know about the romantic life of my teachers. Amber, what about you? I, yeah. I mean, we would sometimes like speculate as a means of gossip, but sure. the teachers would never tell us about their personal lives until Maybe a couple of my high school teachers would be like, oh, me and my husband did this this, this weekend or whatever, but it was very mild. Definitely wasn't uh, anything weird. And yeah, I mean, elementary school, middle school, if you like saw your teacher out in public doing yes. real yes. things, it was weird. Like it, it was yes. uncomfortable. Nobody liked the idea of their teacher having a personal life <laughs> yes. or like existing outside of school. So it's really weird to see these, uh, these videos on like libs of TikTok where the the teachers are like, I'm coming out to my students today. I mean, that was just unheard of. <laughs> what? what? No. I you know, it's funny. Know, like the name of my teacher's spouse. Like, yes, that's what I'm saying. got there. I was a yeah. freshman at Fordham and it was St. Patrick's Day. And we went on, we were on the, we took the subway down to Manhattan to go to the parade. And so we're on the platform. Uh, Andrew, you know, this is like the, uh, the D train uh, going to Manhattan right there, the Fordham station. Oh yeah. Anyway, so I'm at the platform and I'm looking over and I see my second grade teacher. Sister Ellen. Now, mind you, I'm now 19 years old, right? So I'm older. But even then, I was like, Sister Ellen's out. What is she doing here? Oh, my goodness. And, and she yeah. came over and she recognized me and said, Jerry, how are you? And I was like, but it was the weirdest thing. Like, even, yeah. even at 19, it was very bizarre to see Sister Ellen out and about. Let me let me ask you this before we let you go, because I'm very cognizant of your of your schedule and I appreciate you. Spending this has been great fun, Amber. Now that you know, this fun. has been this has but, been but great before fun. We let you go, though, because you are doing this great work for the spectator. And we have been talking about this issue of journalism and journalistic ethics. We had this situation this week with uh, the Chicago Thinker Conference. It's making its way around social media. Uh, got these great questions to um, uh and mayor, I'm not an Ann mayor, and Applebaum, and Applebaum, yeah. and, Applebaum. Yeah. and I was horrified by her response because it, it to me it, and her response, the question was, how come you didn't do this? And she said, well, I didn't think that there was uh, there. We don't think that there was anything, you know, uh, Hunter Biden is not. It wasn't interesting to me. Figure. That's what she said. Yes. Hunter Biden's not a public figure and it wasn't dispositive of the, the election. 
And, and to me, that is a, why I was horrified is because it was a huge abandonment of the whole concept of journalism as the fourth estate. Talk mm-hmm. a little bit about, about, about the journalistic responsibility and this kind of truth seeking, as opposed to what we've been talking about, which is the advocacy journalism. Yeah, well, you guys might have noticed over the past maybe 10 years, and I think it accelerated <laughs> because of Trump, uh, where journalists don't really talk about themselves as fact finder truth seekers anymore. Now yeah. it's all about um, standing up for the downtrodden, uh, being a voice for the voiceless, yeah. uh, speaking truth to power, those types of uh, uh, platitudes. And so there's like a fundamental shift in, I think, how journalists view themselves and those latter statements really lend themselves to this advocacy journalism as you mentioned where they're more interested in protecting certain groups and elevating certain groups and making the other groups look bad so like we know how this plays out the democrats are the good guys and all of their like special interest groups whether it's the the queer community or like people of color those groups can never do any wrong. And then everybody else has to be put in that other category. And that's kind of how journalists have been viewing their role recently. And I thought that Ann Applebaum's response was very interesting because it illuminates this aspect of media bias that I've been talking about for a long time, which is it's not just how you cover stories, but it's what stories you choose to cover. Yes. And she made quite clear that they are not interested in covering stories that expose a certain class of people Um, because I don't think that she just had this surface level understanding of the Hunter Biden laptop and was like, oh, it's about his personal life. Nobody cares. I think she knew, I think all of them knew very well that there were hints of corruption in there with the emails about his business dealings. And they just obviously didn't want to have that microscope on the Biden family ahead of the election. So it's really telling. It's really revealing. I think journalists over the past five years, especially, have really yeah. exposed themselves for who they are. And I guess that's one um, positive aspect of of all of this being laid to bear is that yeah. people are really seeing journalists for what they are and the trust in media has declined so much. And I think yeah. we should have trust in media if the media is good, but it's yeah. just not. Amber, Amber I, I, again, I want to just put a put a put a explanation point on what you just said and i talk about this all the time we want we need a a media that's respected that a media that is holding elected officials and corporate officials and others accountable the the challenge the problem is and you're right over the last 15 years look the media has always had a bias we know this but but regardless uh there were there were ethics there were uh, yes. you know it, it it started the breakdown i think you know i think dan rather was the guy who really started the to, to yeah. who broke who broke media uh, when he just outwardly lied about uh, uh, George W. Bush uh, and and but and then it then accelerated during the Obama years and you're right then Trump it, it just went nuclear um, but we do need we you know the three of us here we're not bashing the media we want a strong uh, independent 
uh, media. The, the, again, the challenge is, is that it, we don't have that right now. Yeah, it, it's yeah. one of those things, right, where we're talking about this concept of journalistic ethics has been abandoned. And I think of two experiences, you know, in my own background. One, where a New York Times reporter solicited an interview with me under completely false pretenses, said he wanted to interview me about X and then ambushed me with, with something else. And then an NPR story in which uh, NPR did a story and didn't reach out to me for comment. You know, it's not as though I'm, I'm a hard guy to find. Um, and, and I had to really, you know, I, I, I really, you know, went to my, I went to folks that I knew at NPR and said, Hey, don't you guys have some kind of code of ethics? And they were like, yes, but sometimes people don't adhere to them. Amber, listen, we, 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 you, you've given us more than an hour of your time. Thank you. Uh, how can folks find out where you are? How can folks follow you on Twitter? What, what do we need to do? Yeah, so they can follow me on Twitter, where apparently I'm making very edgy jokes at Amber <laughs> underscore AC. And then um, also, I would encourage people to subscribe to The Spectator. I have a promo code. It's just my name, Amber. Super easy. You can go to spectatorworld.com to subscribe. And I've been telling everybody to go there because The Spectator, when they got these emails from people complaining, they literally laughed at them and deleted them because they thought uh -huh. it was so patently absurd. I mean, that's like, that's the kind of outlet you want to work for. Yes, absolutely. That defends its talent and laughs in the face of cancel culture. Yes. That's for free speech. So I would definitely encourage people to go to the spectator and, and read some of my work there and subscribe if you like it. Amber, if you so thank you so very much for joining us uh, today. We hope to have you back soon. That was great Thanks, fun. Guys. Hey, listen, before you go though, I want to say this too. The, 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 uh, the spectator for our, our listeners it is, I go to Real Clear Politics first thing I do in the morning. And the second thing is I go to um, The Spectator. So it's, it's, it's real good stuff. You got, you got to get it. There you go. All right. Thanks. And now it's time for The Bottom Line. The Bottom Line. Jerry, these episodes keep getting better, man. I, I mean, yeah, I, there's I, no, no way to no say here's, this. Here's the bottom line. Yeah. And that is uh, Amber is going to be a policy star in in, in uh in the public discourse um you know i'm gonna get get her piece that she talked about put it up on the jerry rogers show page uh, and i also link to it at real clear books um and i love that she's a fighter we need now, more fighters understand. but i'm telling you something she's also funny and i think i should have said this to her she should be doing some kind of one woman she should go on the lecture circuit and do some kind of, it's not stand-up per se, but she could make a mint going and doing presentations about all of this stuff and talking sure. about cancel culture uh, and doing these things. Um, yeah, so I'm glad we got we got in. There was something you wanted to talk about. Uh, we talked about the Hunter Biden laptop story. Um, we we well, talked look, the, about- the, the bottom line with that, the, yeah. bottom line, the bottom line with the Hunter laptop story is, and you know, Jonah Goldberg, uh, who who was uh, one of the yeah. uh, voices around these salon dinners that that uh, Real Clear Politics puts on? You know, he had to walk back his comments. Remember, he said yesterday or whenever yeah. uh, he was also he was also filmed uh, saying that it was a ludicrous or whatever word he used yeah. to suggest that the uh, Biden laptop story had anything to do with the election, only to be called out and sure. said, "Well, if it if if that's true, then why did everyone hide it?" Yes. Of course. It had an impact. And then he had a, he had a walk back. And what he said was what he doesn't like, I guess, are these right wing narratives. But the fact of the matter is the 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 media should have covered it. And let's, it does let's, matter. It let's does talk, matter. Let's talk about yeah. this for one second. 
the whole concept of, of media journalism as the fourth estate is that they are supposed to represent a check on power insofar as they are peering at, they are looking at what's going on with these government officials. And they're, and they're doing this. You know, I got into this years ago. Remember that, that weird guy, Barry Donatio? Um, who was running for that, the, he was running for orphans court judge and it was a whole thing. And all I wanted people to do was look at his record and look at what he was saying. And, and people were like, well, I don't need you to tell me what he's saying. I just, you know, I'm going to just listen to what he has to say. I'm like, well, he's a politician. A politician's just going to tell you what they want to hear. The role of, no, I wasn't a journalist in that, in that sense. I was just a guy. Well, I mean, uh, um, uh, uh, but, but no, no, here's my point. My point is, that with regards to the Hunter Biden laptop story, it, you know, the role of the journalist is to go and peer at what is in that story. Why? To make sure that the guy who's running for president of the United States isn't a crook and wasn't selling his office. Right. And, and also uh, uh, the Federalist just did a good a good piece uh, two days or three days ago this week uh, yeah. where 12 times, 12 times when Joe Biden uh, was connected to knew about. Uh, and was shady uh, uh, with the Hunter Biden business deals. We know now, we know for a fact that the Biden family, including the then vice president, uh, they benefited uh, from these deals. You know, this and the American people like, had a right to know that. This isn't like Billy Carter creating Billy Beer. <laughs> Billy Beer. create a name for himself by doing this. <laughs> I but, have a know, can of Billy is, Beer, by the way. It would be one thing, you know, my, my, I have a cousin who used to have a can of Billy Beer. Yeah. My, but my, my, you know, but the point is, if it may be if Hunter Biden wasn't traveling on Air Force Two to go and make some of these trips, you know, and doing business while his dad was traveling overseas, maybe just maybe uh, we might, uh, we might think that there was no story here. Right. But the fact that he is, and the fact that there is this interplay, right? I used to spend a lot of time during the uh, the the FBI 2016 election scandal talking about the timeline. Maybe if there wasn't this weird coincidence of Hunter Biden being hired by folks in Ukraine at the same time, Ukraine is trying to get U.S. interest uh, by the by the federal government in what's going on in their country, They're, what's going on in their borders. Maybe just maybe I wouldn't I wouldn't be concerned. You, you know, the, 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 look, there's not there's not a lot of data from 2020 in terms of if that story wasn't spiked, what impact it would have had. However, we do yes. know two things. We know that there was a purpose, a reason why the media hid the story, because yes. the media believed it would have an impact on the election. Absolutely. We know that. And secondly, there is that one polling company and I and the name escapes me now. I want to say mm-hmm. MRC or or there is a polling company that did a post-election analysis and found that 16% of Biden voters yeah. would not have voted for Joe Biden if they had known about the Hunter Biden laptop story. And so, again, uh, talk about fixing elections. I know that the left hates to talk about the big lie, you know, Trump uh, uh, saying that it was stolen. But the fact is, is that there was so much for fortification around the election, uh, high tech, social media companies, corporations uh, and others that the 2020 election really uh, should be given a second set of eyes. It was an attempt by the elites uh, to undermine and push out a sitting president. And you can think what you want about Trump. 
Gary, who could right? Who could do that kind of an analysis? Where, where right? And we're talking about everything. I, I tell you who could do it, yeah. uh, and that is these uh, never Trumpers uh, who who at once had great gravitas uh, uh, with the mainstream Republican sure. conservative movement. I think David French, who I think is a decent and good man, uh, could do that analysis. I think Jonah Goldberg. Uh, could could do yeah, that. But we analysis. already, but you know the part. But the problem with somebody like a Jonah Goldberg is now they've created this industry, right? You know where, where right? So they'd have to step away from a paycheck, uh, yes. I, so to speak. Well, uh, they'd have to put their they'd have to put their 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 industry at risk in order to maybe perhaps regain some of that gravitas. I mean, it, right? It gets into exactly what we were talking about with Amber, which is you know you look at it in one way, right? You look at your cumulus and you look at her tweet and you say, oh my God, it's doing reputational damage. And, and this is her going to hurt our bottom line without realizing that when you turf her, when you fire her, it actually does hurt your bottom line. Right. And again, I'll, I'll say this again, because you just, you mentioned it. I can't take seriously any segment on WMAL right now that again, they might have um, syndication that I'm not aware of. Like I think Mark Levin might be on that program. So I'm not talking about Mark Levin. But the local hosts who are who are doing shows on that on, on, on WMAL, why should I believe anything they have to say that they're being sincere about cancel culture or any of the rest of it? Why? Because, Jerry, in the end, right, you know, that we have to we live in the real world and in the real world. I don't know what I don't know what uh, uh, deal Larry, Larry O'Connor has our our friend, my friend, Larry O'Connor has in his contract or Chris Plant has in his contract to protect him in case he does something on the order of, of what, um, what, uh, um, uh, I, 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 you make a good point. I, and I understand your point, but so, so they may have more courage. I I mean, it, but it's, but it's a situation, right? No, no, no. You missed my point though. Yeah. My, uh, my point is, is that in today's culture, if you, if you make a living uh, in the public discourse, the very worst worst ch- charge is um is is um misogyny or racism, or racism. yeah Bigotry. and amber has been fired for being a racist yes i and i understand this and i believe that they have spoken out about this i, I as you and i have talked about i can think of only one person uh in media on air who has ever quit in solidarity of something that has happened to a colleague really you know and that's and that and that and that's that's Rick Amato at One America News who quit over over what was happening with one of his producers. At least that's the way I understand the story. And and so I, you know, as much as I would like, I don't begrudge somebody when they are sort of dealing with their when they have to protect their phony baloney jobs. Um, I don't know. But what imagine kind this. Of, let's just play. Let's just play. But also, Jerry, as yeah. I said, given the conversations, and I don't want to talk. I, I not only do I not want to, I don't think I can. But, you know, keeping in mind that you and I have had these conversations where it has been very, very clear that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But so. play this. Let's play this in your head for a second. Imagine if the talent at WMAL in solidarity did not go back on the air until there was some kind of recompense uh, with, with Amber. I, I, but, but see, I'm not and I'm not again now that I understand that the, that they are. Uh, uh, All right, because we have this conversation offline. I understand that WMAL is a union shop. They may not be able to walk out like this in the same way. 
Okay. Um, so there's, there's I mean, look, our, our listeners are, point, are, are asking point, that question. But my point, my point is, at the very least, unlike other situations that I will not talk about, at least other the other hosts on that station have been publicly vocal about their concern about Amber being fired. You know, there there there, there was a recent incident, uh, right? Because where- because I know because I know of other situations in which hosts have lost their job, and other people at the station have said diddly squat right but this is yeah. different in the sense the charge is 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 racist tweet and that kind of brings it to a different level I, i'll but, say but, this no no but I, I i agree with you but 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 i would i would argue it goes the other way if if someone loses their job because of some kind of uh a tiff with management that has nothing to do with anything uh, untoward that they might have said on the well, that's air different tweet. that's different right yeah yeah well i mean but it's but to me there's no there, there. It, it takes much less courage to speak out either internally or even, at, or God forbid, externally. Look, uh, look. Here's an example, yes. right? If, um, if, uh, if the manager of the New York Yankees, um, was tweeted something out, and some cancel culture mob uh, said it was racist, or there was a Me Too, uh, in a uh, 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 um, claim. But he was obviously innocent and he was fired, though. What if the entire baseball team refused to take the field and they would have to they would have to confront the issue then? here's my point. My point is, is that. In many of these instances, I'm not sure if Amber's situation applies here, but let me just make this broad point. If people would just stand up to the mob, yes, I think the mob would back down. You know, and, it, and and no one has stood up. Well, you we're not standing up. Well, I mean, they're not okay. I think that there are degrees of standing up. I, I applaud the other hosts for actually saying something publicly, because again, there have been there are situations in which do you, uh, do you I, know I, that they said something publicly. I, I do. Yeah, and yes, and in fact, I was surprised. I was I was surprised that they had, and pleased that they had. All right, that's, that's, um, yeah. But, you know, but again, there are degrees. Jerry, listen, we've gone a very long time today. I know. I'm sorry. And, yeah. and, 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 and with and with very good and with very good reason, um, you've got a show on Sunday. Yeah. And it's Palm Sunday. So we're going to have a special Palm Sunday show uh, on WBAL. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the following Sunday is Easter Sunday and it's my birthday. So that'll hey, be a very, right. a very special show as well. I tell you what, I mean, I make a lot of jokes about about the public discourse and being on the air and, and what we do here. But, but it really is, um, it really is a privilege to be able to discuss these ideas with our audience. And I don't take it for granted, uh, but I am, I am tired. I'm tired of, Boy, of good, tired. of good, of good people uh, being bullied, good people being fired and canceled. And, yeah. and I, I wish that, uh, and my prayer is that, uh, good people would begin to stand up to the mob. I think if we stand up a bully in my entire life, I tell one quick story and then I'll let you, and then, and then I'll let you sign off. When I was in seventh grade, I was bullied. There was a, I, we, 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 we came from a grammar school to a middle school. It was public school. And I, you know, I had gone to Catholic school for most of my life and, and I'm in seventh grade. And for some reason, this eighth grader uh, would hassle me. He would book time me. Remember book timing where you have all your books and they come behind you and they smash you and push oh, you, sure. and you yeah. over the place. And never happened. And, but I know, I know. What anyway, you're but, but I mean, for, for school started and every day this was happening. 
And it got to the point where I just, I didn't want to go to school. I was, yeah. I was, I had this, this horrible sinking feeling, this, these butterflies. Anxiety. And finally, right. And my father finally said, what is up with you? And I told him what happened. And he said, Jerry, go and punch him right in the mouth. And I was like, I can do that. He's like, do it. I said, well, I'll get in trouble. He said, no, you won't. He said, you go the next time he does that. And what I did the next time he did it, I turned around in front of the assistant principal and I broke his nose. I, I smashed him and busted up his nose. And I've, and I was never bullied after that ever again, any, anywhere I went. My point is we need that moment in our culture where good people bloody the mob. Well, I mean, but there, there's that. And also, you know, uh, kudos. Uh, and I mean that figuratively, not literally. No, 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 no. Yeah, I understand. Yes. Very, very important point. Yes. I, you know, but that's kudos to the spectator for standing up for it. Not that they yes. Yes. But Jerry, and everyone here down. should become uh, uh, subscribers to the I'm, spectator. I'm go do it uh, in, uh, the spectator. Uh, your code, discount code, uh, Amber. Um, right, and remember, and Jerry, it's not it's not the American spectator. It's spectator USA, spectator, spectator world. That's, yeah, that's right. So, so, Jerry, just to just because you're, what you're talking about here is uh, uh, speaking the truth and planting your feet, isn't it? Yes. Find <laughs> the truth, plant your feet, stand firm. There you God go. God bless you. Have a great week, everybody. Have fun and uh, stay safe.